Well, I was 27 years old, and the plot and the set and the characters and the script of the life of Jeannie Stevens seemed perfectly written for me. Jarrett and I, we'd been married for a few years. We were doing ministry together. I was working at an amazing church. I loved my job. I loved the people that I was working with. I was using my spiritual gifts. I was gaining experiences that most people in their 20s only dream of. My bosses, they were encouraging and they were supportive. And, and every time I talked with them, they said, Jeannie, your future is so bright. It's filled with so many possibilities. I loved my life. It was a beautiful life. The department, though, that I was working in, uh, they did some shuffling of things around, and so they shuffled some personnel around, and a new director was hired, and he became my boss. His first day in the position, he uh, called me into his office and made it very clear to me that he was going to change just about everything that we had already been doing. He, he let me know that the things that I had been doing in my job that I loved, that he was now going to be doing, and he was going to give me a whole new set of assignments that would be my responsibility. I began to see that there was some new writing on the wall, and clearly the wonderful life that I was living was about to change. The first months of him being in the position, I silently wondered if we were really going to be able to learn how to work together. There was so much tension between us. There was, there was an unspoken lack of trust. I found myself questioning his decisions and questioning his motives. And, and we had a few moments along the way. We had a few moments where I would knock on his door and say, hey, can, can we chat? I feel like, you know, maybe things aren't going the way that they should be going. Can we try and work this out? But every single time we had one of those conversations, we just sort of stayed on the surface and nothing really ever got resolved. We just sort of went back to how things were. Well, about nine months into doing this awkward dance with one another of not really being able to work well with one another, he called me into his office and he said, Jeannie, we need to talk. We need to talk. This just isn't working anymore. To which I piped up and I mean, I, I jumped in and I was like, I'm so glad you finally said something. I couldn't agree more. To which he then spoke up. And said, here's the thing, I've decided to terminate your job. Your job in this department is of no more. And I'm sure there are some other departments around here that will be a better fit for you, but it's not going to be in this department. And I was shocked. It's not at all what I thought he was about to say. I remember telling myself, like, pick your jaw up off the ground and move it back up. I remember whispering into my mind and saying, Jeannie, make sure you don't say anything that you're going to regret right now. Uh, I, I have a history of doing things like that, um, which is a totally different sermon that somebody else should give. Um, and I remember tears started to form in my eyes. And I said really simply, okay, um, I have a lot of questions and I have a lot of feelings about this, but I think that I want to think about those things and can we talk about this tomorrow? To which he said, yes, that's fine, but my decision is final and you need to understand that. And most of what we'll talk about is the specifics of how we're going to transition you out of your role. And so I gathered my things 
and I walked out of his office. I remembered it was five o'clock at night, right when I was walking out of his office, and uh, I, I had actually agreed to host this midweek service at our church, uh, and so uh, I had to sort of collect myself and pull it together. I hosted the service, and I remember after that service, I walked into the door, and I began to explain to Jarrett what had happened that day, and I literally fell apart. I just fell apart. I didn't know what to do. But I knew, I knew that I wanted something to be different. I knew that I wanted something, but I had absolutely no idea how to get it. I mean, clearly, my relationship with this guy, my relationship with my boss, it was not good. There were conflicts upon conflicts. There were accusations and there were tensions that literally had been boiling for nine months. And it finally came to a head in that moment. And all I really wanted was for him to understand me. I wanted him to respect me. I wanted him to value me. I wanted him to value our working relationship. And I had no idea in that moment if that relationship, let alone my job, could actually be salvaged. But I knew that's what I wanted, and I had no idea how to get it. And what I couldn't see in that moment, what I didn't know was about to happen, was that I was about to experience one of the single greatest gifts in my life as I walked right into the middle of that tension. Somehow, somehow, My boss and I, we found a way to get to the other side of what had broken down in our relationship. Somehow we were able to walk right into the middle of the conflict. And as we walked into the middle of the conflict and as we began to wade through the weeds of that conflict, we found a way how to get to the other side of what was really going on. Now, it sounds so poetic. Wow, that's amazing. You resolved things and then you ran into the sunset? That's amazing. Not at all. It took four months. It took a ton of humility. It took a lot of honesty. There were a lot of tears. It took the wisdom and grace and godly counsel of leaders in our church to actually step in and to intervene and to actually lead us through a biblical process that I'm actually going to teach you tonight that's outlined in the book of Matthew. And it took an undeniable work of God in our lives. And what I experienced, what I experienced in that relationship is that conflict has an unbelievable upside when it is experienced the way that God intends for it to be. And that situation, that season of my life, it sits on the top 10 defining transformational moments in my life that came from something that no one ever goes looking for. And that's conflict. That experience transformed my life. It changed who I am. And the thing about conflict, the thing about tension, the thing about relational difficulty is that when conflict starts, no one sees it having an upside, do they? No one looks at conflict and goes, you know what, there's going to be an upside somewhere in there. I'm looking forward to it. No one views conflict that way. 
And my hunch is, is if you are in this room today, and if you're human, you have had a tension with another human at some point in your life. And if you haven't, then here's what I have to tell you. You're not human. You're not human if you haven't had a tension with another human being. And every conflict, every conflict... No matter how big or small, no matter how many people are involved, no matter if it gets resolved, it starts in the same place. Every single conflict that has ever existed always can be traced back to the same place. Someone wants something, and they aren't getting it. Every conflict can be traced back to someone wanting something and them not getting it. Ever been there? Ever, ever been in one of these situations where you want something and you're not getting it? Ever had a tension between you and another person because you totally saw a situation differently than they did? We've probably all been there. Ever have an argument with someone because they said something that really hurt your feelings and all you really wanted for them to do was apologize, but they couldn't figure out a way to do that? Ever hope that someone would do something and when they didn't, you punished them with the silent treatment or you withheld love from them because you wanted something and they didn't give it to you. And so you had to let them know how you felt about that. You see, any time an expectation is not communicated and therefore not met, it's because someone wants something and they aren't getting what they want. So my question for you today, my question for myself today is what is it that you want that you're not getting? What is it that you want that you're not getting? Think about your relationships. Think about your friendships. Think about the people you work with. Think about your spouse Think about your family members. Think about the people that you you tend to do life with day in and day out. What is it that you want that you're not getting from them? You see, when you want something and you don't get it, what happens is a tiny fire gets lit. And that tiny fire, we all know what happens with tiny fires, right? If they're not doused and they're not put out, they can grow into something that can begin to cause quite a bit of damage. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at two different passages of Scripture that have a lot of wisdom and have a lot of counsel for us on what to do when we find ourselves in these situations. The first passage that we're going to look at is going to show us how it is that we actually get ourselves into these problems how we find ourselves in these situations. The second passage that we're going to look at is actually going to help us find the path for how to get out of them. So I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles, and we're going to dive into two passages together. The first place where I want you to turn tonight is to the book of James. It's towards the end of the New Testament. And James is one of the most practical books in the Bible. 
The thing that I love about the book of James is that James doesn't hold back. He's clear, he's helpful, especially in this area of conflict. So I'm going to ask you to turn to James chapter 4, and I love how he starts this out right in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, he starts out by asking a very helpful question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's a good question, isn't it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, obviously, in my situation, the story that I just told you about, I didn't take this verse literal. I mean, I didn't kill my boss, okay? Now, I'm not saying that I didn't think about it a couple of times. I, I pondered and, you know, I, I ran through those options and I realized if I did something like that, I'd have a lot more problems than just looking for a new job. And so, obviously, I didn't take this verse literally, but I had a desire, just like the book of James says here. And that desire, it started to grow. And over time, the flame got bigger and bigger. And what happened was that in that relationship, I never sounded the alarm. I never sounded the alarm. I just let the tension keep rising. I just let the tension keep growing. And the fire got bigger and bigger and bigger. And my desires, they were good desires. In fact, most desires, most desires in relationships, they start out in good places. That's because desire actually comes from God. In fact, God wants to give you the desires of your heart. But in conflict, what happens is that desire ends up taking on two different forms that it was never intended to take on. The first is unspoken desire. And the second is unmet desire. In fact, just think about, think about your life right now and think back to perhaps a recent conflict in your life. Most likely, one of these two things happened in that conflict. You didn't communicate a desire that you had or perhaps you communicated that you had a desire and the person decided to not meet it. And then you found yourself in a conflict. Just this last week, Jarrett and I, we had one of these things that we like to refer to as strongly worded disagreements. Strongly worded disagreements. Some people like to call them fights. Uh, We had a strongly worded disagreement, and I was really mad at him. I was really frustrated because I had communicated, and I thought that I had communicated clearly, a desire that I had. But he didn't hear that desire the same way, and therefore he chose to not meet the desire. Now, it it erupted, and we had that, you know, strongly worded disagreement with one another, and then we got to the point where we had to figure out how we were going to resolve this conflict that we were having. Now, Jarrett and I, when it comes to conflict, we have different styles of how we deal with conflict. Jarrett, he's, he's more versed in the sort of hoping the conflict is going to go away. Like if you don't think about the conflict and if you just sort of ignore that maybe the conflict happened and you just sort of run away from the conflict or you like you throw it away or you mask it, maybe it really will go away. I don't know. How many of you have this sort of retreating tendency when it comes to conflict? 
Yes, yes, there are many of us in the room, and, that, and that's how we tend to deal with conflict. I, on the other hand, have a different approach to conflict. You see, when I see conflict, I see it as an opportunity to go get a full set of army fatigues on, and I prepare for battle. Okay, so, so this is how I view conflict. And when I say I prepare for battle, I mean I prepare to win the battle. Um, th- this, is how I, this is how I view the conflict. Now, neither styles, neither styles are usually appreciated by the other person. And so what we have to do is we have to go, okay, I, I need to not retreat. I need to actually talk about this. And I have to decide to put the army fatigues away, you know, to not come in, buns, you know, guns blazing and decide, okay, we need to actually discuss and talk about this. So we had to sit down and we had to talk about what it was that I desired and how I wanted him to meet that desire. And this is exactly, this is exactly what James is talking about in this passage here. You want something and you don't get it. It's a desire. It's a desire. And do you know what happens to desires that go unmet or desires that go uncommunicated? You know what they become? Demands. They become demands. You didn't give me what I wanted, and so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get it. I'm going to get what it is that I want. On on Sunday mornings, we have Soul City kids upstairs, and there's toddlers just running free and running wild. They're not really running free and running wild, but it sounds better. And, And all of those toddlers are really, really, really good at this. They're great at demanding what they want. And you know what happens in conflict to adults? When we don't get what we desire, you know what we start to act like? Toddlers. We start to act like toddlers, and we start to demand that we get what we want. And unmet desires have the capacity and power to begin to work themselves into the soil of our hearts. And this is especially true when we see the desire as something that we need or something that we deserve. You see, when we believe that we can't be content or we can't be fulfilled until the desire is met, we start to demand it. And what ends up happening is we even begin to justify our demands to validate our actions. You see, even if the initial desire that you originally had was a healthy desire, when it goes unmet, oftentimes what happens is it can grow so strong, it can even begin to control our thoughts and our behavior. And what the Bible refers to when this happens is that the desire becomes an idol. And an idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy or to be secure. So let's say you have a desire in a relationship and that desire hasn't been met. And so therefore you say, well, I'm just so unhappy. I'm just so unhappy. What you've done is you've placed all of your hope on that desire. It's now an idol in your life. And desires that become idols continue to want something. And so they demand that they get it. And when your demands aren't met, oftentimes what happens is you start to take it to the next level. You see, when a demand isn't met, you usually start to become a judge, don't you? 
You become the judge. You start to see yourself as better than the other person. And do you know what ends up happening? You just start to discriminate. Now, discrimination, oh my gosh, that's a huge word, right? That's a big, strong word. And my hunch is there's not a single person in this room that would raise their hand and they would say, yeah, I, I think I have an issue. I think I have a problem with discrimination. None of us would put ourselves in that category or nor would we ever want to think that we're in that category. But you know what discrimination is in its most natural state? It believes that I'm better than you. Discrimination believes that I'm better than you. And when we judge others, that's exactly what we do. My desires, what I want, is more important than what you want. And we begin to judge. And lots of times it it doesn't even start out with you being judgmental to the person's face. It usually happens in your heart. But then it grows Sometimes you start to criticize, maybe nitpick, maybe nag or attack, perhaps condemn. Because what happens is that you literally start playing the part of a mini-God in the conflict. In fact, in that same chapter in the book of James, just a few verses down, verse 12, it says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, you start to have feelings of superiority and indignation. You start to condemn others in your heart, and what happens is bitterness and resentment begins to grow. You start to question and speculate about the other person's motives, and you cross a line, and you become that person's judge. And when judgment happens, do you know what ultimately gets revealed? What ultimately gets revealed is that there is an absence of genuine love and concern that you have towards the other person. And do you know what judges? Do you know what judges are really good at? Judges are really good at handing out punishments, aren't they? Judges are really good at doling out a punishment, at teaching a lesson. And so discrimination, what that grows into is discipline. And so now you, you've turned your desire into you being the one that's going to dole out the punishment through discipline. Sometimes the discipline is deliberate by reacting with, you know, overt anger and and hurtful words to inflict a pain. But other times it happens in a complete withdrawal from the relationship. You just start pulling back. You just start withholding affection, maybe even physical contact. You stop returning text messages. You just ignore the calls that come in. And oftentimes you just decide altogether, I'm going to just abandon this relationship. Anyone ever been punished in a relationship? Anyone ever have somebody act as a judge? It's painful, isn't it? It hurts. Maybe somebody hasn't included you, hasn't communicated with you. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you've been the judge in a relationship. And what's so amazing, what's so amazing about all of these things is do you know where it comes from? It comes from the same place. It comes from a desire, doesn't it? It comes from a desire. And that desire grows into a demand and then it becomes discrimination. And then what happens is you discipline the person and what happens is that most of the time that relationship then faces death. 
You see, the further you walk down this path, the more inevitable it becomes that this relationship certainly will die. It certainly will die. And you can literally just look through thousands and thousands of years. People have walked this path and relationships have died. Friendships have died. Families have been broken up. Marriages have ended. Churches have experienced splits. Companies have folded. Nations have been divided and they have died because people didn't know what to do with their desire. I wonder how many broken relationships are in this room tonight. I wonder how many of us have walked down this path. I wonder how many of you thought perhaps that it was the other person's fault. And that's where the blame remained. You see, this is, this is one of the most painful things to walk through because if you've watched a relationship die, it's literally heartbreaking. And as your heart was breaking, so was God's heart breaking because this is not what he intended for our relationships. This is not what he designed. This is not what he longs for. And James so clearly paints and presents the problem. But you know what Jesus does? Jesus says there's a path. There's a path. There's always a way out. You can always sound the alarm. You don't have to move from the desire to the demanding. You don't have to move from the demanding to the discrimination. You don't have to move from the discrimination to the discipline. This relationship doesn't have to die. There's always an alarm that can be pulled, and Jesus paints a path for us to follow so that we can do that, so that we can actually experience peace in our relationships. I want you to flip back to the book of Matthew, page 688. And Jesus, he spells out this biblical model for how we can experience peace in our conflicts. He shows us that there can actually be an upside, an upside that can come from conflict. Matthew 18, we're going to start out in verse 15. This is what it says. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit pause right there. What Jesus is talking about here is when a desire has gone bad, okay? When a desire has gone south, sin has now entered into the equation and there's a mess in the relationship. Usually it's when any one of those things that we just talked about has happened. You had a desire and it didn't get met and so you started to get demanding or somebody got demanding with you or perhaps you started to get judgmental or or there was a misunderstanding or you started to wonder about something. What he's talking about right here is when things go south in the relationship, when sin enters into the equation. If there's a conflict with someone, he says, here's the first step that you need to take. Go to the person just you, and point out the fault. Jesus is really clear. It's one sentence, and in that one sentence, he makes it incredibly clear what it is that he wants us to do. And I think this is the first place where things tend to go wrong for most of us, isn't it? Because what happens is when there's a conflict, most of us end up going to the wrong person. 
we end up going to the wrong person. I have this person over here, and I love them, but we have a conflict with one another. And so Jesus says, okay, if you have a conflict with one another, go to that person. Okay, I should go to this person. All right, we have a conflict. Oh, I'm scared. Oh, I might say the wrong thing. Oh, they might be judgmental. Oh, we might not work it out. Okay, I'm going to talk to somebody else about it. And we go to the wrong person. And oftentimes what happens is we start by going underground and inside of ourselves, or we go to someone else, and what ends up happening undoubtedly is that the relationship gets more blown up when we do that, doesn't it? Going to person over here just makes it worse. It blows up the conflict into something even bigger than it was. And this passage does not say go to the person with a laundry list of issues that you have with them, and maybe a laundry list of issues that you have with like life and the world and weather and government and you know everything else that you're upset about in the world. Just go to them about the issue. Go and point out the fault is what Jesus says. Go with only the issue at hand. Scripture couldn't be clearer on the first step of what we're supposed to do so that we can live at peace in our relationship. So the first step is me and you. See, there's only two people in the equation. Me and you. No one else needs to get involved here. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows that oftentimes me and you sometimes go south. Me and you sometimes doesn't work. Me and you sometimes doesn't really totally get everything resolved. And so he's like, I understand. I get it. I've got another step for you. The passage goes on. Matthew 18, verse 16. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So how do you know, how do you know when you're supposed to do this? How do you know when you're supposed to do step two? When step one doesn't work. That's how you know when you're supposed to do step two. If step one doesn't work, well, then you go, okay, what do you say, Jesus? Okay, I'm supposed to go with, you know, a wise person so that they can establish the testimony. If you've approached the person with love and with grace and with truth, and there still is a separation, there's still a conflict, then you find another wise person that can help you walk through the situation. How do you know who to take with you? Like, how do you know who a wise person is? Well, Jesus says that the role of that person is to be able to establish testimony, to be able to establish testimony. And to be able to establish testimony, literally the scriptures say, don't go out and get your best buddy that will for sure be on your side of the argument. Don't look for that person. Don't look for the person that perhaps you've already gossiped to about the situation. The person that you need to go to needs to be a person that is a good listener that can establish the testimony of both people. Essentially be able to represent what both people are saying to one another. Ever meet those kinds of people that are just such amazing listeners? They have this ability to listen to what's going on in the room and they listen to what each person is, being, is, each person is saying to one another and at the same time, they're also listening to what God is saying. 
They have one ear open to what's happening in the room and one ear open to God. That's the kind of person that you want to take with you in this situation. And this can be such a tremendous gift in a relationship. Maybe you've experienced this. I know I've been invited um, into helping people restore relationships before. And each time I've, I've sat in those rooms, they are holy moments. They're moments where the Holy Spirit does an amazing work where hearts can hear one another because sometimes it takes another person to help two people that have been hurt to really hear what the other person is saying. Because you know what happens? Our hurt, our hurt when you and I are hurt, it makes it really hard for us to hear, doesn't it? When you're hurt, it makes it really hard for you to hear what the other person is saying. And having someone that can see straight into the middle of the conflict and then lovingly guide you towards restoration and reconciliation is such a gift. So the second step that Jesus says, first step, me and you, there's two people involved. Second step, it's me and you and a few, okay? It's me, it's you, and it's a few. So when, when step one doesn't work, then step two is add one or two people into the mix to help you understand what is really going on. Well, Jesus goes on because he knows that sometimes even step two doesn't work. And he goes on, and in verse 17, he says, If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Whoa! I mean, Jesus is not holding back here, is he? So if step two doesn't work, then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go to the church. You're supposed to seek godly leadership to help facilitate a hopeful reconciliation. And Jesus says quite clearly, if you get to this step and there is still no desire, still no desire for the conflict to be restored by both parties, and there's a blatant sinful resistance, then the scriptures say... Treat the person as a pagan or a tax collector. And that's, that's some very strong counsel from Jesus here. And I think it leaves us with a question. What does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? How do I treat a pagan or a tax collector? God, how, what, are, what are you asking me to do in this situation? Well, to be treated as a pagan or a tax collector doesn't refer to excommunication. It doesn't refer to public humiliation on the part of the church. In fact, when you think about it, who are the people that Jesus spent the most amount of significant time with? If you read the Gospels, you see that he spent the most amount of time with pagans and tax collectors. Do you know who wrote this down? Matthew. Do you know what it used to be? a tax collector. You can just imagine when he was penning this and writing it in his little scribe, his little moleskin, you know, and he was like, this is awesome. I'm writing the Bible. You can just imagine him thinking like, awesome, I used to be a tax collector. This is great. 
This passage doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything about the removal of love or the removal of grace from that person's life. In fact, I love how the message version of the Bible translates this verse. It says that if he won't listen to the church, well, then you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to start over from scratch. You're going to have to confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Nowhere, nowhere in the Matthew 18 process of conflict resolution does love ever leave the equation. So the third step, the first step is me and you, right? Second step, me and you and a few. Third step, me and you, we go to a pew, okay? I know it's super cheesy. I like cheese, and I also want you to remember this, okay? (laughs) Me and you, we go to a pew. Now, Jesus, he goes on. He goes on in this passage, and he says, here's the thing. Truly, I tell you, truly, I tell you, he's really trying to make a point here. Whatever, whatever it is that you bind on earth, it's going to be bound in heaven. So whatever you do here on earth, it's going to affect eternity. And whatever you lose here on earth, you will lose it in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth, listen to this, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, then it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together, where two or three are reconciled, where two or three are restored, where two or three experience peace, where two or three work through conflict, together in my name, there I am with them. You see, Jesus is telling his disciples Listen to my words. Listen to my words and listen to your words. For what you say here on earth, they will have eternal consequence. And that when we choose to resolve and agree with one another, when we choose to push through, when we choose to go to the person, when we choose to restore the relationship, when we choose to make reconciliation paramount in the relationship, God goes into action. God goes into action. God so longs to see us in agreement with one another. He so longs to see us at peace with one another. He so longs to see broken relationships restored with one another. And that when he sees it, it literally causes him to move towards his children in answering prayer. I think a lot of people have actually taken this verse out of context and they've taught it the wrong way. I think a lot of people teach this verse and they say, you know, when two people get together and when they pray, God is there with them. Well, yes, of course, God is here. God is everywhere. But what this passage is specifically saying, it's falling right out of Matthew 18, where God is teaching us how to be reconciled with one another. What this passage is saying is that when two people do the hard work and when they speak the truth and when they own their faults and when they seek forgiveness and when they decide to let the dark be out and the light come in and when they choose humility over their own pride and when they say words like, I'm so sorry, I was so wrong, will you forgive me? 
well, then that's when God gets to work. That's when God gets to work. You know why? It's because restoration and reconciliation are literally the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the core of the cross. The very act of the cross is an act of restoration. The very act of the cross is an act of reconciliation. The cross is like the ultimate Matthew 18 process for you and I to be reconciled to God. And God so longs, he so longs for us to see our broken relationships restored. He doesn't want them to become these, these wildfires that are out of control. And you know what happens to wildfires that are out of control. They burn up everything and everyone in its path. And here's what I know about you because I know it about me. If you started to smell smoke somewhere in this building, if you saw a little flame go up in the corner, the first thing you would do is you would sound the alarm. You would break the glass. You'd go running for a fire extinguisher. You'd call the police. You'd call the fire department. You'd call 911 because you wouldn't want a fire to break out. And here's what I'm asking you. Why is it that if a real fire is burning, you're willing to break the glass? But if a fire is burning in your relationships, all you tend to do is walk away. Why won't you sound the alarm? Why won't you break the glass? Why won't you push through the fear? Why won't you go to the other person? Why are you so afraid of saying the words, I'm sorry? Because restoration and reconciliation is a part of living in Christian community. See, the mark of a transforming Christian community that is living in the ways of Jesus is not the absence of conflict. We're all imperfect people. We are filled with sin. You are just a sinner, sinner, sinner. You're going to have conflict. And the mark of a Christian community that is transforming and living in the ways of Jesus is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of restoration and reconciliation. That is the mark of a transforming Christian community. And the upside of conflict is peace. The upside of conflict is peace. Anne Lamott, one of my favorite writers, she says that earth is just one big forgiveness school that you can either practice being right or you can practice being kind. Earth is just one big opportunity for us to experience forgiveness with one another. And you can either spend your life trying to prove your point and trying to be right, or you can say, you know what? I'm going to spend my life choosing forgiveness and choosing kindness. You should be experiencing, I should be experiencing forgiveness every single day. If we're in a forgiveness school, we should be experiencing forgiveness every single day. We shouldn't be afraid of saying the words, you know what, I was wrong. I just judged you. I was really mean to you. I just withheld love. I just got scared in our relationship. 
I sort of put myself above you. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I just hurt you. I wronged you. I gossiped about you. I said something behind your back. I broke down trust in our relationship. I just really wanted you to like me. I just really wanted you to invite me to that thing. On a regular basis, on a regular basis, we should be saying the words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who cares? Who cares if you're right? Who cares if you're right if you're forgiven? Who cares if you're right if you're forgiven? Being forgiven is so much better than being right. It's so much better than being right. And I'm sure there are some of you sitting here today. And my hunch is you've done every one of those D's and then some. And you've got more in your list. And my hunch is people have done those things to you. And my hunch is there's probably some of you that are like, I've tried all of that. I've tried the like the me and the you. I've tried the few. I didn't have a pew, but I mean, I've tried all of that. I've tried all of that. And this relationship is still a mess. And, and you don't understand my story. You don't understand this conflict. There are layers upon layers upon layers. You just keep peeling the layers back and there's no way this thing There's no way. This is too difficult. This is too hard. There's no way this thing could be restored. It's just too complicated. And you know what? You're right. It is complicated. Do you know why? You're complicated. You're complicated. You know what else? The person on your right, they're complicated. Do you know what else? You're sitting on someone's right. It's so complicated. Relationships are so complicated. And conflict is so complicated. If I was the president of Facebook, I would literally make everyone change their Facebook status to it's complicated. (laughs) Because it is. It's so complicated. Relationships are so complicated. And there are some relationships there are some relationships that may not be restored, that may not be completely reconciled. But that doesn't mean that you have to live with the absence of peace. It doesn't mean that you have to live with the absence of peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The relationship might not be restored, but you can still be at peace. Do you know how you know if you're at peace? You ask yourself the question, do I still love them? Do I still love them? You know, I have combed this book for a couple of decades now, and I can't find any out when it comes to love. There's no, like, escape route when it comes to love in our relationships. Jesus never says, okay, now this one, yeah, you can stop loving. There's never an out when it comes to love. And my hunch is, I don't really need to keep talking anymore. Because you already know what the Holy Spirit is stirring up inside of you and what you're supposed to do. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. 
And I'm going to ask you to bow your head, and I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and put your, your Bible, your journal, things around you down. And I, I am confident of this because I know it's true in my own life. There are some of us in this room and there is a relationship that we so long to be restored. There's a relationship that we so long to be reconciled. And if that's you tonight, I'm going to ask you to courageously put your hand up. There's been a misunderstanding or an unmet desire, an uncommunicated desire. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to just courageously and boldly to lift your hand, and I'm going to pray for you. God, our hearts, our hearts are so tender, and our hearts are so hungry and so in need of your restoration, so in need of your reconciliation. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and through your spirit, that you would come in and that you would do the work first in us, first in us, to remind us that we are reconciled, that we are restored in you, through you, not by any righteousness of our own, but by your grace and through your mercy. And God, I pray that you would humble us, that you would humble our hearts. And that, God, you would create in us a desire to find peace, to find reconciliation, to find hope, to offer love. God, I pray, I pray that the sun would no longer set broken relationships in our lives, but that you, through the power of your spirit, would do the great work and ministry of reconciliation in our lives, God. So I pray that you would even prepare the other people that we need to speak to, that you'd prepare their hearts. You'd soften their hearts. You'd soften our hearts, God. And God, I'm asking in some of these situations in my own life, God, some of these seem so out of reach. They seem like they're literally hanging on the thread of a miracle. But God, our hope is in you, and you are the God of miracles. And so we are asking for reconciliation, and we're asking for restoration, because we know that it leads to peace. So God, we come to you, asking for you to move. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.